Well, thank you very much for the invitation to lead you in worship uh, this morning and to bring God's word to you. I send you greetings from the uh, faculty and the students at Divine Hope Seminary. And uh, I'll say more about this after the service during the announcement time, but we'd love to have uh, the adults among us here from time to time join us for chapel or uh, even to visit some of our students from time to time. That would be greatly appreciated. If you turn with me in your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Psalm 51. You'll find this, according to your bulletin, uh, in the Pew Bible on page 405, page 405 of the Pew Bible. This is the word of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. The heart of man is deceitful above all else. It is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You may remember those words from the prophecy of Jeremiah. And I think there's no text in Scripture, no story in Scripture that better illustrates that truth than the account that led to the writing of Psalm 51. Perhaps uh, most, if not all of you, know that story well. You'll find it, for example, in uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Really the low point of David's life and his reign as king of Israel. The story goes, the story is set in the time when when armies would go to battle in the springtime along with their king, But already there's a red flag because at that time, on that occasion, rather than going with his army, David stays back. 
David's content, David's prospering. He's really at the high point of his reign as king. He's also spiritually vulnerable. There's a sense of of self-content. And he wanders in his palace on the roof. And his eye meets the gaze of, of a woman who is bathing on her roof. A beautiful woman. He's smitten by her. There was no sin in the first glance. But there was a second glance. There was an infatuation. He makes inquiries, David does, about this woman. Finds out she's a married woman. In fact, her husband is one of David's soldiers in the army, fighting for his king and for his nation and for the Lord on the field of battle at that very time. And David begins to connive and make plans to bring this woman Bathsheba, this beautiful woman whom he wants to possess. He takes her to the palace. The affair begins, and she becomes pregnant. Now what does David do? David has to cover his tracks. And so what he does in his scheming ways is he invites Uriah back from the field of battle to come back home so that it would appear as though while while Uriah was back home, his wife conceives. But Uriah is a loyal soldier, godly man. And he does not want to dishonor his king by making himself comfortable at home while his fellow soldiers are fighting in the field. And so he returns back to the field of battle. Now what does David do? It begins to escalate. David has to cover his tracks. And so he makes arrangements with the commanders of the army so that Uriah is placed in the field of battle, in such a place on the front line, so that he is exposed to the hostile attack of the enemy. In fact, he tells the commanders at one point in the battle, make sure that all the other soldiers pull back so that Uriah is exposed and he's eliminated. And that's precisely what happened. Uriah is killed as a hero on the field of battle and David takes a deep breath. His sin is covered. He can now continue with his reign. He doesn't have to worry about a husband who's enraged because of what's happened to his wife. And David stays that way for some time until the Lord sends his prophet, Nathan. And Nathan, knowing the power of an absolute monarch, you know, we have a hard time appreciating, I think, just how powerful an absolute monarch is. At the word that he speaks, a person can be put to death. There's no court of appeals. There's no lingering process in the courts. He can be put to death. And so Nathan, rather than directly confront him, the king, he sidles up alongside of him. And he relates the story. You know the story about a wealthy man, prosperous, who has a friend over for for dinner. And rather than taking one of his own sheep from his own flock, he, he steals a ewe lamb from his poor neighbor. And that ewe lamb meant everything to that poor neighbor. The rich man steals it and uses that for the, the meal for his guest. David hears that story and he's indignant. He's outraged. He says that man should be punished who would do such a horrible thing, such an injustice against a poor man. At which point Nathan says, but O oh, king, don't you understand You are that man. Now think about that for a minute. David can hear that story and become emotionally wrought up 
Inside, he becomes indignant. He wants justice to be carried out. Meanwhile, he's entirely blind to his own sin. By the way, that's something that I emphasize in the pastoral counseling classes I teach in the context of prison, that all of us, whether we're behind bars or outside of those bars, all of us come to terms with, we must come to terms with, that is, there is self-deceit in the heart of every single one of us. Do you know what that's like? I mean, have you experienced that, where the Lord has exposed that in your own life? One of the most common ways that we do to deceive ourselves is by comparing ourselves to other people. So you can read through a litany like we had this morning. You can participate in the prayer of confession, and yet in the back of your mind you're saying, well, I know I'm a sinner. I'm not going to deny that, but I know that, I know that my sins aren't nearly as bad as, as that person's sin, Right? Or we rationalize, we make excuses for our sin. We do all sorts of things. David is completely blind to his own blindness until the prophet brings the word of God to bear. And the spirit then directs David to compose this psalm. Really, the essence of this psalm is about the heart. As you'll notice in your bulletin, a heart that is broken, a heart that's cleansed, and a heart that's renewed. What I want you to appreciate this morning in this psalm is that we work our way through it, and so keep your Bibles open, is the progression of the psalm. The psalm begins with lament, with deep sadness, profound grief over what David has done, and it ends with praise, with doxology. Is that not the trajectory of of salvation. Think of Paul in Romans 1. The anger of God, the righteous, holy anger of God is poured out against the rebellion of mankind, but then from him, through him, to him are all things. There is this beautiful crescendo of doxology, praise, glory, and that's exactly what David does. So I want to walk through that progression with you this morning regarding the fact that the Lord will not despise a contrite heart. That's the best news, I think, that you and I could ever hear this morning. But there's also a challenge. And the challenge is, do you have a contrite heart? Has the Lord given you that gift of the conviction of your wrongdoing so that you turn away from yourself, away from your excuses, away from your rationalizations, your self-swindling, And you turn to Jesus Christ. That's why I had us read this morning from Hebrews chapter 10. With Jesus Christ, there is the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. So let's look at the text this morning. First of all, a broken heart. And what does David do? David pleads with God, have mercy on me. David knows that he has no recourse but the mercy of God. He can't say to God, well, you know in my heart the good outweighs the bad. You know that by and large I'm a good king. I've made my mistakes. I've, I've wandered away in terms of this incident with Bathsheba. No, he says, I know that I may only plead upon your mercy. I'm asking that you take pity on me, God. Because I can't bring to you my righteousness. My righteousness is like filthy garments. But notice as well. What does he appeal to? Not only the mercy of God, but his steadfast love. That's a covenant word. 
Why does God show his love? Why does he lavish his grace upon us? Because he is faithful in keeping his covenant. Think of the way the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament begins. The the Israelites crying out in misery. I mean, they're, they're being oppressed by Pharaoh and by the Egyptians. It can't seem to be any worse than what it is at that moment. And the text says the Lord remembered his covenant. Not that he forgot, but the Lord is acting upon the promise that he made. It's not because of our faithfulness. It's not because of any merit that we bring to him, but because he is gracious and merciful. What is the essence of sin? He says, blot out my transgressions. I've crossed the line. That's what a transgression is. There was, there was a marker that was set down, and I've crossed it. I did it deliberately, willfully. I did it in my pride. I did it in my lust. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. There's a stain. The stain of guilt, the stain of shame. You know, I've talked in my classes about that with students, too. There's one thing to deal with guilt that you have committed some wrongdoing, but there's also shame, isn't there? And we all experience that in some way. And some people have to bear that publicly. I could tell you stories from my own pastor about people that, once you get to know them, it's unmistakable. They have to come to a worship service every Sunday, and everybody knows that that was part of their past. Now, how do we deal with that? David is very much aware of what stains him Cleanse my soul from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. There is the conviction. Sin is this accusing presence saying, you have offended God. You have hurt other people. I, I think of the, the scene from uh, the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua the high priest, remember, stands before the Lord and Satan is there accusing How dare this man, Joshua, serve as priest? Satan's called the accuser because he does that to us all the time. How dare you come here and presume to sing praises to God? How dare you come here and pray? How dare you come and and talk about the gospel? I know all the, the dirty little secrets that you bring with you from the past week. I know all the things that you've said. I know that all the things that you've done. And with David, there is this wrongdoing, not only of of him having acted upon his lusts, but also having plotted murder. My sin is always before me. In other words, I just cannot get rid of that accusing presence. And the gospel is this. In Zechariah chapter 3, the Lord says, enough of you, Satan. And he says to the high priest, change your clothes. Because the high priest comes before the Lord with garments that are stained, which is symbolic of the sin that stains us. He says, give him new clothes. Put new clothes on him. But then verse 4. Remarkable statement, by the way. And maybe a puzzling one for many of you this morning. How can David write this? When he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Have you ever thought about that when you read or this morning when you sang from Psalm 51? How can David talk about sinning only against God? Didn't he also sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he also sin against Uriah? Didn't he also sin against the people of Israel because of the way he acted as their representative? And the answer is yes, of course. 
But in its most basic sense, all sins are sins against the Lord. Bathsheba, Uriah, they are image bearers of God. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And to sin in our body, to sin against other people, is to offend God, the God who made us and the God who keeps us. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You don't hear David making excuses, do you? You don't hear David trying to rationalize what he's done. You know, there are certain perks or prerogatives that a king can have, right? He might say, don't you know, in the ancient Near East, that's what kings do. They can have their way with their subjects. And if they want to plot the death of one of their soldiers, who's going to stop them? No, David doesn't do that. David says, I know, because you are a holy and righteous God, that you are justified in your actions. And should you condemn me for what I have done, you are perfectly justified in doing so. But then also, verses 5 and 6, not only does he describe the essence of his sin, transgression, iniquity, uh, being polluted, that sort of thing, but also the origin. How does this happen? David contemplates, where does this come from? Is it just a matter of making bad choices? A misdeed here, a misdeed there? A lack of judgment? That sort of thing? A slip up? No. It goes much deeper than that. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. A good test to see if you understand that biblical teaching is to ask the question, to answer the question. Does committing sinful deeds make you sinful? Or do you commit sinful deeds because you are sinful? That's a question I ask my students. And of course, you know the answer is, we commit sinful deeds because we have a sinful heart. And what needs to change is not just behaviors, not just actions, not just a way of thinking, but the heart has to change. The heart has to change profoundly. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Unless you're born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And you remember Nicodemus' response in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, you mean to say I have to go back into my mother's womb? I mean, that to him was just such a preposterous idea. And Jesus says, you think that's, you think that's outrageous. I'm talking about something even more profound than that. You need to be a new creation. By water and the word, he tells Nicodemus. He says, and you, you, teacher of Israel, seminary professor, Steeped in the scriptures. Don't you understand these things, Jesus says? And David understands as well that he carries with him a nature that must be transformed and it can only be transformed from the outside by God through his spirit as we heard prior to the prayer this morning. So thankful for that reminder as well. Our conversations with loved ones, our conversations with neighbors, with people in our communities, They don't change people's hearts. The Lord has to change the heart. We are merely instruments the Lord uses to bring about that change. And that's why David says, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
David contemplates his sin, why did he do what he did? Is because he had a heart that needed to be changed. That's a broken heart. But there's also a cleansed heart. Verse 7 and following. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. That's a reference to the Old Testament practice of the high priest or the priest dipping a hyssop branch in a basin of blood and sprinkling the people. You read about that in several places. I just referred to that last Sunday in my sermon to my own congregation. Uh, Exodus 24, when the, when the people are ratifying the book of the covenant with the Lord. These things we shall do. And a branch is dipped in blood and the people are covered. They're sprinkled. They're spattered with blood. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. You notice the transition here from the awareness of sin to to joy, to celebration, to thanksgiving. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The bones you have broken. A wonderful book to read in connection with Psalm 51, by the way, a good book for devotional meditation is a little paperback book by Dr. Paul Tripp called Whiter Than Snow. I recommend that. He has numerous uh, meditations on various parts of Psalm 51, and I take many of my insights from what he writes in that book. But he uses the analogy of, of these people today who flip houses, who do these restoration projects. And you know, some of you may be grimacing when you hear that. Because it's a lot of work to tear down a structure to the bare bones, to the, to the studs maybe, to the foundation maybe. And then in order, to do, in order to build it up, you have to strip it down. I think there's something similar to that with what David's speaking of here. There are times where the Lord has to strip us down. David in his, in his pride and his presumption as king, he doesn't go with his army to battle. That was the custom in that day. David stays back. David's content. David's becoming very comfortable as king. It's good to be king. And it's precisely at that moment the Lord uses that that episode in his life to break him, to crush him, as the Lord may have done and is doing in your own life right now. It's a gift of grace for the Lord to expose your sin. One of the things I, I talk about as well when I teach the students, and maybe it's something that they've never thought about before, but the Lord, the Lord brings people in our lives to be the eyes and the ears in situations where we're often blind and deaf. Have, have you known that experience as well? Sometimes the Lord brings difficult people into our lives. And so I appreciate very much uh, our prayer leader t- talking about how holidays can be a very stressful time. Believe me, I know that. They can be a very stressful time. And they bring up painful memories for some people. But the Lord brings difficult people and circumstances into our lives to refine us, to expose our hearts, to challenge us, to see where change takes place in our lives. So too, the Lord brings people into our lives to help us to see ourselves more clearly in relationship to God. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. The remedy is washing thoroughly, cleansing. 
And that imagery, it runs throughout the scriptures. But there's also this blotting out, which has the imagery, boys and girls, of a, of a ledger, an accountant's ledger. And I know today in our information age, we don't do that sort of thing. I think my father still does that with his farm. Everything's handwritten. In fact, he's very proud of that. But you have this ledger with all the accounts written, and it's just white clean. Everything's erased. It reminds me of a, a story that uh, Dr. J. Adams, who uh, some of you may know in terms of his writings on pastoral counseling, tells a story of a couple that came to visit for a, a session of counseling. They're having some marital problems, and the wife brings with her a notebook, spiral-bound notebooks. And in that notebook, she had kept a record of all the, the misdeeds of her husband. Now, if your spouse, if you're married, or somebody close to you kept a ledger of all the wrongs that you had done, how, how thick do you think that ledger would be? Mine, mine would be quite thick, I suppose. And the surprising thing was when Adams confronted the wife about that, he says, you know, it seems to me you, you have a problem with forgiveness. Now, that seems obvious to us, but she was offended that he would say that. I'm not here to be, to be changed. My husband has to be changed, right? The other person has to be changed. And here David talks about blotting out my transgressions. The Apostle Paul picks up on that as well in Colossians chapter 2. That, that ordinance that was written against us, wiped clean. You know, there's that beautiful statement that we read that was read this morning from Hebrews 10, the Lord remembers our sins no more. What does that mean? How can an all-knowing God, an omniscient God, not remember anymore? And it simply means he will not hold it against you. Compare that to the way you and I often treat the people who have wronged us. I feel very much uh, convicted of that in terms of how I deal with my children. My youngest is 17 years old and going through that wonderfully uh, difficult time of the teen years with all of its joys and sorrows. But how many times I catch myself saying, why would I give you this when the last time I gave it to you, you messed it up, you screwed up. And we have to remind people of all the ways they have hurt us in the past, all the ways they have disappointed us. That's why the Lord gives us godly spouses my wife will tell me, you need to knock that off. You need to stop that. The Lord remembers our sins no more. He will not throw it against us, at us. He will not hold it against our account. What needs to take place? Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a, a right spirit within me. Again, these are things that David cannot do on his own initiative. These are things which only a sovereign Lord can do in our hearts. But then also notice what he fears is not simply the consequence of his sins against other people. What grieves him the most is the prospect of being cast away from God. What was the most horrific part of Jesus' suffering? It was not the physical agony of the cross, you understand. It was when he recognized as the sin bearer, as our substitute, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in David's case, the Lord does not cast him away. 
for the sake of Jesus Christ. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So it's not enough simply to have the slate wiped clean. Something has to replace the sorrow, the brokenness, the pain, the hurt. And that is the joy of the Lord's salvation. That's a cleansed heart. And then finally, a renewed heart, verses 13 and following. There's this wonderful transition in this psalm. Comparing David before his conviction of wrongdoing, before his confrontation by Nathan. How does he deal with people? How does he deal with God? He's arrogant. He abuses his power. He treats people like they are possessions. In Bathsheba's case, this was a beautiful woman for his own personal gratification. That's how he saw her, let's be honest. I mean, how timely in light of the news events of the last several weeks, huh? We're seeing this among some of our nation's top political leaders. People are just objects to be used for their gratification. That's all Bathsheba was. Uriah was just a pawn to be moved on the chessboard on the battlefield. But when the Lord changes the heart, now he ministers, now he loves, now he serves his neighbor. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He doesn't want to just keep this truth for himself. This is not simply some secret relationship he has with God. He wants the whole world to know. He wants to celebrate it. Our worship this morning is a way of saying publicly to the world, the face of the world, you're on the front line here in this context of ministry. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I may have shared this with you last time, but one of the chaplains at the Indiana State Prison says, said to me, you know, what we're doing here in prison, we're not at the front line. He says, we're, we're in enemy territory. And I think, believe me, after two and a half years now, I'm convinced of that more now than ever. But in many ways, you are on the front lines, culturally, educationally. I mean, you are facing, you are facing the gods of this age as they, are, as they make themselves known in this context, culturally. And so David sings, David rejoices. And then in his relationship with God, notice verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. David knows by this point. The Lord has so worked in his heart that he recognizes, and we ought to recognize as well, that the externalism Uh, of simply going through the motions. This is not what pleases God. This is not what impresses God. How many times in the Old Testament doesn't the Lord say to his people, you know, your, your sacrifices, your feasts, your festivals, they're making me sick. They make me gag. Because you don't worship with the right heart. These people, they worship with with their lips, but their hearts are, are far from me. And Jesus picks up on that as well. Matthew 15 He says, oh, you're so concerned about the external washings. Because remember they said, the Pharisees and the Sadducees said to Jesus, we notice your disciples, they they don't go through all those ritual washings. They don't wash their utensils. 
They don't go through all those external practices to keep themselves pure. Like us. To which Jesus says, don't you realize it's not what's on the outside, it's what's inside a person that corrupts them. And when the Lord worships, it's not the eloquence of the pastor, it's not the beauty of the music, it's not how loudly you sing. It is your heart. This reminds me of what Micah 6 uh, verse uh, says about how the Lord will be pleased with worship that comes from the heart. He says, what shall I come with before the Lord? Shall I come with thousands of animals for sacrifice? Wouldn't that be impressive? In a day where you brought your, your best animals to the temple? What if I came with thousands of cows, thousands of goats, and had them slaughtered as an expression of my worship. Or maybe I would bring thousands of rivers of oil to consecrate. Or maybe better yet, maybe I could bring my firstborn as as a dedication, as a sacrifice to God. No, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God? Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isn't that beautiful to hear this morning? That in in the face of your wrongdoing, in the face of the conviction of sin, the Lord will not push you away. For the sake of Jesus Christ, he draws you near. I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I do in prison were it not for a verse like this dealing with people's past actions and the consequences, the lives that had been profoundly affected by their wrongdoing and the guilt, the shame, the humiliation, the regret, all those things, believe me, it's it's not just like teaching in some classroom where it's merely academic. You're dealing with people at the heart level. God will not despise a contrite heart. So this morning, for example, I drove... On 74, past Danville, I could see the prison at a distance, and one of our students was preaching this morning. A man who at one time was on death row in Illinois. (laughs) And by God's grace, he's preaching this morning. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Wow. It's a beautiful thing to see. It's a beautiful thing to see, not not only in such dramatic ways, but also among the congregation here to see how God brings about that profound change like with David. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Which ultimately leads to a prayer for the people of God. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bulls will be offered on your altar. So let me ask you, by way of conclusion, can you see yourself when you see David? Can you identify with his own, his own attempt to swindle himself, being content that he had covered his tracks? Nobody knows about it. And then the Lord brings about that conviction of sin. And there is that process of brokenness that leads ultimately to to doxology, to singing, to joy, to delight. 
if there is unconfessed sin in your life, don't be afraid to go to the throne of grace. Hebrews says, go boldly, which is an amazing thing when you think about the Old Testament and the Lord always telling his people, keep your distance. Think about Sinai. People saw the smoke. They heard the thunder. They saw the lightning. And what did they say to Moses? Moses, you speak for us. We don't want to come near. You think of the Holy of Holies, the way the temple and tabernacle were structured. Only one person, one day a year, could enter the Holy of Holies. That was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And according to Jewish tradition, I don't think you find it in the Bible, but according to Jewish tradition, when the high priest went there, he had a rope tied to his ankle in case the Lord would strike him dead. Keep your distance. And when Jesus lays down his life for sinners like you and me, what does the text tell us in the scripture? The, that curtain in the temple dividing God from man, separating him from man, is torn in two. Now come boldly. Come boldly and you'll receive the fullness of God's forgiveness. He will lavish his love and his grace upon you because of what Jesus Christ has done. Never forget, the Lord will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Amen.